What the sust? 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 Hello, listeners. We have missed you so, so much on What the Sust, but we're very glad that you got to hear from some other Dalhousie students during our Human Health mini-series. Today we have your hosts, Sophie and Rebecca, and we're so excited to be back with you today talking about biodiversity loss. Before we get ahead of ourselves here, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording on the unceded territory of Mi'kmaq. We feel it is especially important to acknowledge how the beliefs and traditional knowledge shared by Mi'kmaq teachers and other Indigenous communities in Canada presents a perspective of the world that recognizes the intrinsic value of nature. This recognition creates the respectful and sustainable use of resources to provide for the next seven generations. The damages of colonization are felt deeply across Canada today, and only through awareness, education, and intentional action can we create meaningful reconciliation to repair these damages. We would like to recognize and of these practices. We are all treaty people. Let's begin. So, Sophie, what is biodiversity? Well, when I think of biodiversity, the first thing that pops into my mind is almost like a picture from a biology textbook. And it's like a forest or jungle type environment with a bunch of diagrams and arrows going in different directions, indicating how the nutrients in the soil get taken up by the roots of the trees and plants. And then these plants grow leaves and fruits or even just meaty stalks that get consumed by animals and bugs. And then these animals and bugs take their nutrients from the plants and leave waste that is taken by other animals, bugs or decomposers in the soil, which will get broken broken back down into useful molecules for plants to absorb and start the cycle all over again. That is a great example of something that happens in all ecosystems called nutrient cycling, which is sort of like the food webs you may have learned about in high school or elementary school. Biodiversity makes an ecosystem better at nutrient cycling and all the other jobs ecosystems need to perform for the species living there to survive and thrive. Oh, you're so right. I think I was getting a little ahead of myself there. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who can basically guess what biodiversity means. It's just a slightly shortened version of biological diversity. And if you're familiar with either of those words or both of them, you'll have some idea of what they refer to. Put simply, biodiversity refers to the variety of all living things and their interactions, such as the nutrient cycling that I was just describing. That's very true. And actually, it's funny that you picture a large forest and jungle ecosystems when you first think of biodiversity. Because when I think of biodiversity, I'm thinking about the grass and trees along the roads that I walk on during my daily commute, or the pigeons and seagulls we have here in Halifax, or even the worms I see on the sidewalk after it rains. Yeah, that's such a great point. And this is a really cool subject to talk about living in Halifax, which is a city for any listeners who don't know. Is a small one. Yes, a small city for sure, but still a city, which is a type of ecosystem. And even I totally forget that sometimes. I'm sure a lot of people do. It's easy to hear terms like ecosystem and biodiversity and immediately think of big interactions happening in faraway places like scenes from planet Earth. But I also think more people are starting to understand that we humans are part of ecosystems as well. Especially with symptoms of climate change really starting to spread across the globe, like the crazy weather events that have been happening here in Canada. Exactly. We're starting to see the results of human activity in our own backyards, which really helps make clear the connection we have with the biosphere. And this connection matters just as much on a small scale as it does on a large scale. 
Making sure individual ecosystems are strong is how you make sure the entire biosphere can be healthy and function how it should. Even our little ecosystems in the city are important in making sure their natural biodiversity can thrive. Oh yeah, now we're getting to the good stuff. Rebecca, can you break down for us exactly how biodiversity makes an ecosystem so much stronger? I would love to. Having various types of species within an ecosystem makes it stronger the same way having various types of individuals within a single species makes that species stronger. A deadly virus or weather disturbance could easily wipe out a species made of entirely identical individuals. The more variations there are among individuals in a species, the more adaptable it is, and threats of disease or climate change are less likely to disrupt them. For an ecosystem, having diversity not only makes it more adaptable, but it makes it possible to perform its healthy functions. These healthy functions are what make all life on Earth possible, such as the nutrient cycling Sophie described for us a moment ago. A lot of these functions are considered ecological services, and they're critical to all life on Earth. Ecological services sound oddly like something you might go to the DMV for, but they are far from something humans could ever write up a form for. An ecological service that you may remember from back in elementary school is the one trees perform when they take in CO2 from the air and release it as O2. All animals alive, including humans, rely on the trees to do this so that we can breathe in the air here on Earth. And it's not like trees execute this process for the sake of us. This is just how healthy trees behave. Yes, I think that's the coolest thing about ecological services. As much as they so perfectly suit the needs of us as humans, they're not for us. They're just the normal physical, biological, and chemical functions of ecosystems. They provide so many environmental benefits, such as sequestering carbon, producing food, treating waste, forming soil, and so many others, just because that's what healthy ecosystems do. And these healthy ecosystems are the ones with lots of biodiversity. Absolutely. Every different species has a different role, and every role is absolutely critical to the overall functioning of the ecosystem, even the organisms fixing molecules in the soil. Especially the organisms fixing molecules in the soil. Absolutely, you're so right, Rebecca, because those tiny interactions make the big interactions possible, and humans rely on all of these interactions to thrive as well as survive. Not only are we getting basic needs like food and clean water through ecological services, but biodiversity gives us access to a diversity of medicines, fuel, and building materials that have made it possible for humankind to get as comfortable as we are. Not to mention the beauty we get to experience. For simple pleasure alone, biodiversity is important. Because of it, humans get to see and smell and hear, taste and feel such a fantastic array of different things. Oh my goodness, yes. Imagine what a sad, drab world we would live in without the diversity of colors and shapes and sizes that nature has given us. And saying goodbye to some of it could mean saying goodbye to all of it. Either directly or indirectly, every factor within an ecosystem will affect each other. And we often can't even predict exactly how these effects will play out. Even tiny, minute changes can have massive, cascading effects because the ecosystems of the world are so interconnected. That's why, as humans, biodiversity is something we need to start seriously protecting. If we look at the history of biodiversity loss, we can see how humans have disrupted the Earth's system. The current rate of species loss are 100 to 100,000 times greater than they were before humans. We've actually reached levels of species loss that rivals periods of mass extinction, and possibly even have entered a new geological epoch due to the extent of changes humans have made to the Earth's biosphere. 
Ah, yes, the supposed Anthropocene, not so fondly named for us humans who have caused it. This is a really interesting topic that we won't have time to go into today, but if you want to know more, I know National Geographic has a really good article online about it that we will link in the description. Yes, whether or whether or not we're in a whole new epoch, we are reducing the planet's biodiversity at shocking rates. There are a lot of human activities that contribute to this. As we've discussed in our previous episodes on plastic packaging, humans consume a lot more resources now than ever in history. Due in part to population growth, but also largely to economic and social factors, we have grown careless in how much we consume and waste. We take more than we need, and the methods we use to extract resources are not nearly as efficient as they could be. Motivated by monetary wealth, we overexploit populations until they are depleted and unstable or completely extinct. This applies to animal populations and plant populations. Since humans could band together, we've been hunting species into extinction, but our harvesting of forests threatens our own oxygen supplies and the structural integrity of our soils. Without the strong root systems of trees and other plants to hold dirt together, areas are much more vulnerable to being washed away by floods or rain. Do you want to see what Dalhousie students on campus think about biodiversity? Then head on over to our Instagram and TikTok at WhatTheSusPod to watch a fun video of us conducting street interviews on campus. Who knows, maybe you'll be featured on one of our next ones. Our soil is under threat in other ways as well, through harmful agricultural processes. The popular form of farming for large companies is planting a single species over huge patches of land known as a monoculture. This sort of farming can turn areas of nutrient-rich soil into uninhabitable fields of dirt. Furthermore, pesticides and herbicides are known to threaten surrounding native species. Human pollution is also a driver of biodiversity loss by directly choking out habitats or by overloading other systems. Nearly a third of the CO2 we dump into the atmosphere dissolves into the ocean, increasing its overall acidity. This acidity has been observed corroding the shells and skeletons of calcifying organisms, posing a serious threat to their populations. Beyond directly overexploiting or poisoning various species, humans also threaten biodiversity by spreading non-native and invasive species. I know this is something cities, even little ones like Halifax, struggle with. We've changed the ecosystems in the HRM because a long time ago, non-native trees were planted along the streets. Non-native plant species can really make it difficult for the ecosystem to flourish as it should. They can be better at taking up nutrients than native species, thus stealing resources from the species that usually thrive. Furthermore, the native plant species here in Halifax have existed in the Acadian forest since before European settlements, meaning they are familiar attractions for birds and pollinators and suitable habitats for other wildlife in ways that non-native species are not. I never knew that all of our street trees were non-native. I know, right? It's easy to tell in the fall because you can see how many trees are turning such a beautiful shade of red and others are still completely green. No way! That makes so much sense. I've definitely noticed before in the fall when I'm driving out of the city that all of the trees along the highway are showing the beautiful autumn colors, and most of the trees I was seeing in the city were still green. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to see. When non-native plants and animals are really good at taking resources from other species, they can be considered invasive species. 
Invasive species are non-native species that have begun to expand outside of their region and can cause potential harm to the environment, economy, and or human health. Ah, invasive species. Just as evil as they sound. Well, no, they're not evil. They're just species who have found places they can flourish and are doing so. It's just that when they end up reaching populations within ecosystems that can't, that can't support them, they can usually cause a lot of damage. In Canada, this has been happening a lot due to climate change. Regions that used to be too cold to inhabit certain species are warming up, and so these species are beginning to spread. Okay, I think I've heard of this. When I was in Ottawa a couple summers ago, it seemed like everywhere I looked, people were wrapping blankets or burlap around their trees to protect them from being devoured by beetles. I think they were called emerald ash borers. Yeah, that's a really good example of an invasive species. But those beetles actually didn't spread due to climate change. It's assumed that emerald ash borers made their way up from Michigan in logs and firewood because they are known to spend most of their life cycles under the bark of trees. They have caused a lot of damage to the ash trees population in Ontario. Sharks, however, have been observed spreading into regions they previously couldn't inhabit because the oceans are warming. They're not considered invasive, but it is still a little spooky to think about great whites swimming along the coast of Nova Scotia. as if I needed more reason to fear swimming in the ocean. (laughs) But actually, something that comes to mind when I think of invasive species is the blue-green algae that has been pretty regularly overgrowing in areas in the Annapolis Valley since I was a teenager. When the blue-green algae that is native to this region gets access to more nitrogen and phosphorus, it overgrows and produces blooms which can be toxic to animals. It has been suspected that agricultural wastewater runoff is the source of the excess nitrogen and phosphorus, and it means that people in the area cannot swim in or drink the water. I have a couple memories of driving down to Lumsden's Dam in the summer just to see signs up along the shore saying, don't swim, don't let your dogs in the water, don't drink, you know, just being really clear that they're not messing around, this is not safe water. Wow, right there is a perfect example of what happens when our agricultural practices really screw with our environments when they're not careful. And beyond humans not being able to swim or drink this water, I wonder how the species within the lake's changing ecosystem were affected. Actually, Sophie, you have a case study that might help us imagine how one change can affect an entire ecosystem, right? Do you want to share with us now? Oh boy, do I. This is one of my favorite case studies that I learned about in one of my first sustainability courses here at Dalhousie. Some listeners may be familiar with it as well because this story starts all the way back in the 1930s in Yellowstone Park in the United States of America. Back then, the gray wolf was being targeted greatly by hunters and eventually was completely killed off within that ecosystem. The elk and deer populations that were previously kept in check by these gray wolves were able to flourish like they never had before. This meant that the willow and aspen plants that elk and deer consumed were overgrazed, and in turn, the beavers who relied on these plants to build their homes and survive through the winter suffered greatly. Furthermore, as noted earlier, the absence of root systems from these willows and aspen species made the soils easier to erode, so riverbanks were washed away and the shapes of the rivers themselves were changed. Wow. It's crazy. When relevant individuals finally recognized the connection between the cascading effects, the decision was made to reintroduce gray wolves to Yellowstone Park. The shift was undeniable. Elk and deer populations decreased, resulting in enough willow and aspen to reinforce the soils. Because of this, riverbank erosion slowed and the rivers were able to deepen their channels and develop small pools. 
Also, the beavers finally had access to their share of the willow and aspen, and their population completely recovered, going from one colony in 1995 to nine colonies today. Wow, I really love hearing about this case study. It's wild that just taking one species out of an ecosystem can literally change the shape of the rivers. In this case, it was gray wolves, which are apex predators, so this is an example of top-down effects. However, bottom-up effects can be just as far-reaching. For example, there are organisms in our soil that fix molecules into useful nutrients for plants to absorb. If one of these nutrient-fixing organisms were to go extinct, plants can get nutrients from the ground and consumers can get nutrients from plants. And pretty much, no one in the ecosystem will be able to survive. Absolutely. An ecosystem with maximum biodiversity can more easily bounce back from species loss, but we can only really guess the absence of which species could cause total system collapse. And once a species is gone, it's gone for good. True. As much as I enjoy the Jurassic Park films, I know we can't rely on science fiction to solve all of our problems. There are people trying, but we're nowhere near being able to reestablish extinct species. Exactly. And that's why we need to be focusing on keeping the species we still have alive and healthy. Yes, and actually that can start in our own backyards, literally. A common fad since industrialization has been maintaining plain grass, and often artificial lawns. These lawns are fast gaining popularity because it is durable and does not require weeding, fertilizing, cutting, or watering. I have some information here taken from the Health Impact Assessment about artificial lawns from the University of Toronto, and this breaks down why these kinds of lawns can be so harmful. These lawns often lack flowers or natural weeds, so animals and insects can't thrive on them. Artificial turf specifically retains heat, which contributes to the urban heat island effect that makes cities so much hotter than other regions. Artificial turf also causes rubber leaching into the underlying soils. Furthermore, the most common species of real grass that are used for these lawns are non-native species not to mention the fuel and emissions that come with keeping it trimmed up all the time. Whether it's real grass or artificial turf, these manicured lawns do not provide any ecological services and decrease the biodiversity of the ecosystem. Although in areas of drought, this replacement is sometimes required. On the other hand, natural lawns are carbon sinks, meaning that they take CO2 from the atmosphere and don't release it. And, I hope this is no surprise at this point, letting a diversity of native species grow on your lawn supports the biodiversity of the entire ecosystem. Soil would have a better quality, plants could grow stronger, bringing in pollinators and providing habitats for other species. The manicured lawns we usually see only provide aesthetic value, or perhaps occasionally a space for recreational activities. Oh yeah, that's fair. But if you do use your lawn for playing games or hanging out with friends, it's not like you have no other option besides trim grass. Do you like taking videos? Do you like watching movies? Do you like the outdoors? Well, we have an event for you. If you have answered yes to one or more of these questions, you should consider enrolling in the DAL Outdoor Society Film Festival. You can find more details through the DAL Outdoor Society Instagram. For one, just by introducing mixtures of native grasses, clover, and herbs, you can increase your lawn's biodiversity while keeping pretty much the same aesthetic. 
I've seen a lot of people recently allowing their lawns to develop into these lush, colorful ecosystems with flowers and grasses and rock gardens or paths, and even sometimes ponds. That sounds so lovely. I also have noticed more and more people lately are using their lawns to grow food. This option sounds like a fair bit of work, but with the price of living nowadays, it's tempting. The point is, there are healthy, biodiverse ecosystems to fit any person's lawn preferences. That is the point, Sophie, and a very good one. Another thing is, if you want a truly low-maintenance lawn, it's got to be relying on its own natural cycles and not on someone to mow it every few weeks. It's really becoming more common for homeowners to just stop mowing to allow native plants to move back in and thrive. I absolutely love hearing that. It's so sweet to imagine this sort of homecoming of a bunch of plants, animals, and other organisms moving back into these newly diversified lawns. It is really nice to think about. And letting your lawn grow longer allows its root systems to also grow, becoming stronger, deeper, and more widespread throughout the soil, which prevents it from being easily washed away. Longer grass is also more resistant to drought and better able to compete with weeds. It's kind of funny that most people treat their lawns the same way just because that's what was popularized back in the 18th century. And in my experience, few people really can articulate why it's so much better to have a manicured lawn besides the clean look it gives a yard. Well, while researching this topic, I read that this type of lawn became so popular back then because it meant you were wealthy enough that you didn't need goats to trim your properties. Nowadays, it can also be considered a status symbol because households with more disposable income can afford to pay or have the time for long care. Having lawns that look unruly has become associated with the lack of time, effort, and money being put into it. And that is just so funny to me. Understanding the realities behind these different types of lawns, I'm just flabbergasted because I still mostly see the manicured, real or artificial grass lawns, and now every time I see them, all I can think about is how much money and time this household has to spend to make sure their lawn is as plain and unexciting as it can be. (laughs) I do think, as more people are realizing the kinds of benefits we've spoken about, we will begin to see even more households shifting to natural lawns. But yes, I personally agree these manicured lawns don't seem inviting at all. Whereas when I do see a natural lawn flourishing, it is entrancing. Whether it's flowers, veggies, different grasses, or even rocks, I will want to check it out. And maybe curl up somewhere in some tall grass to nap like a baby deer. Yes. Maybe take a hard nap. (laughs) Maybe. I've actually seen a meme a few times circulating on the socials that talks about manicured lawns versus natural lawns, and it has just one picture of a plain, trimmed, single-species grass lawn, and then a picture of a lawn the same size that has been planted with native species and allowed to grow how it naturally wants to. Under the manicured lawn, the caption says, you, and under the natural lawn, it says, the guy she told you not to worry about. (laughs) That's so funny. I think I may have seen that meme somewhere recently, too. It really speaks to how the attitudes towards lawn care is shifting, and I love to see that. It's easy to feel hopeless about the climate crisis, so it's important to recognize every win, no matter how small, and I think this is a very small win. I agree, Rebecca. And because all our ecosystems are so connected, a small win like having more natural lawns can potentially create large-scale solutions. And even when the climate crisis feels too overwhelming to even think about, humans will always be the most equipped species on the planet to face it. Exactly. Unlike all other species we share the biosphere with, we as humans can recognize changes happening in our ecosystems and rationally analyze them. This is the best way to come up with solutions. 
And not to mention, since it's human activity that has caused the climate crisis, we are the only species who can make the changes that will reduce those negative effects of climate change. But there are a lot of ways that we can do this. Oh my goodness, there are so many ways. Increasing the biodiversity in your lawn is one sure way, but there are many other issues we touched on today that would benefit from more individual action. If you want to do your part to prevent the spread of invasive species, visit nsinvasives.ca. Their homepage features five actions any individual can take to reduce this particular threat to biodiversity. Oh, I love that page. They use handy slogans and break things down to easily understand. It has an incredibly user-friendly interface. Some of the actions they suggest include don't move firewood. This prevents the spread of beetles like the emerald ash borer that live under the bark of trees. They also say don't let it loose. This action addresses individuals who have non-native pets or plant species in their home, explaining why it can be so harmful to release any of these species into unfamiliar environments. The Clean Drain Dry action and the Play Clean Go action both greatly endorse cleaning off your recreational gear, boots, and clothing before leaving a recreational area. This includes letting your water equipment dry completely, checking your terrestrial equipment for branches or leaves, and removing any insects, mud, or plants from all gear before entering or leaving a recreation site. Those are pretty common sense actions, but I actually have never personally considered cleaning off my boots before I head home from a hiking trail, especially not as a preventative measure for invasive species. I know, same. It's a good reminder of how important even the movement of one organism can be. Also, the final action nsinvasives.ca endorses is called PlantWise. This refers to planting only native species. They even provide an extensive PDF called the Grow Me Instead Guide that breaks down what native species are available to us in Nova Scotia. We've also spoken about the benefits of not mowing your lawn, but if you need more motivation to stop mowing, there is a whole movement now that would support your decision. No Mow May has recently been popularized in North America, and homeowners in the HRM participate as well. No Mow May. Is that like dry January? Exactly. For the month of May, those who choose to participate don't mow their lawns. The goal of Nomo May is to provide early season foraging resources for pollinators that emerge in the spring, especially in urban landscapes where few floral resources are available. A lot of conservationists have also come up with further steps homeowners could take alongside not mowing their lawns, such as planting native species and not raking up fallen leaves. These leaves help keep the ground warm near the colder months, and important insects like bees, as I mentioned, might be staying there to keep warm during the time. These leaves help keep the ground warm near the colder months, and important insects like bees might be staying there to keep warm during that time. Having this leaf layer also helps with drainage and the amount of water that the grass can retain. I also remember learning in school that you leave the fallen leaves on the ground because then they can decompose and provide good nutrients and soil for your lawn next year. That is absolutely true. Decomposers are the species in every ecosystem that get what they need to live from decaying or dead organisms. So, big shout out to decomposing species like bacteria, fungi, or insects like worms, millipedes, and beetles. Because of them, humans and a lot of other species get to eat fresh, recently living organisms. And next time your lawn is full of leaves, think of those guys trying to do their job, and maybe just leave them on your lawn. Leaf them on your lawn. (laughs) 
I remember growing up, we would always rake the lawn, and it wasn't until I started learning about ecosystems in school and learned that fallen leaves have a role in these ecosystems that it even registered to me at all that leaves on the ground are supposed to be there. I was so used to getting rid of them that I guess I just assumed fallen leaves must not be good for your lawn. It kind of blew my mind, but it was also really good ammunition for me to try and get out of raking. <laughs> yeah, I remember we always raked our lawn growing up, too. My dad would always call us out to the yard and say, the leaves are on the ground, the collection is next week, get the bags out, we have to collect all of them now. But now I do think that it's kind of silly to spend so much time raking up leaves that are providing nutrients to the ecosystem. Yeah, and I understand as much as the next person the desire for things to be neat and tidy, but we cannot expect nature to be one of those things. We just need to support nature the best we can so it can do its thing. Ecological services, giving life and beauty to us all, you know, all of it. Yes, and all these small actions we've been talking about are exactly the kind of support our ecosystems need. Also, if you're living in the HRM and want to contribute more to our city's development, check out shapeyourhalifax.ca. This is a website where you can put in inquiries about how you want our city developed. I highly recommend checking this page out if you're interested. They provide great breakdowns of projects currently or potentially taking place in Halifax. So even if you don't have a particular topic to address, you can just get updated on what's going on in the HRM. It is fantastic. Well, I feel like you should probably wrap this up, but it's been really great sitting with you today, Sophie. Thank you, Rebecca. I've really enjoyed myself, too. Biodiversity is probably one of my favorite topics to think about because it makes me feel so, like, safe and cozy. As scary as it is to hear how much humans threaten biodiversity, the sense that my existence is reliant on so many other factors and organisms in the world makes me feel very at home. I know what you mean, actually. When you think about how interconnected we are, it does feel like all of us different organisms on Earth really are just one big family. A family that survives together by consuming each other and also each other's poop and dead bodies. But still, we're doing it together. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that our listeners have enjoyed our conversation today about biodiversity. And I also hope that the last comment about eating poop did not change that. Even though we still only really scratched the surface, I think that we did paint a pretty good picture today of the way biodiversity affects us all and at such different scales. Yes, and most importantly, that every little organism in every ecosystem matters and can cause cascading effects, and that we as humans are a part of those ecosystems. While this podcast is supported by the College of Sustainability at Dalhousie University, the thoughts and beliefs shared by hosts do not reflect the views of Dalhousie University. Do you have any questions or comments about our conversation today? Send us an email at wtsust at gmail.com.